Revelation is probably the hardest book in the whole Bible. And uh, I didn't preach on it until the very end of my ministry, partly because it's a very difficult book to preach through. And uh, I want you to, to uh, realize that uh, this is inevitably hard. And that's not because the Bible itself is always hard, but because this book is so complex and so obtuse and so um, mysterious. So uh, it is also a book that really uh, is best understood when you understand the rest of the Bible very well. And so, and none of us understand the whole Bible well enough because even those who know the Bible very well still struggle with the book of Revelation. But um, for those of you who don't know the Bible that well or who feel like you don't, um, it's going to be inevitably difficult. So be patient with yourself and with me, please. And... um, you know, we have 16 more weeks after today. We're going to finish by the end of this year. And then we'll move on to, to um, hopefully, uh, less complicated things. We're actually at a critical juncture in the book of Revelation. Today we come to the end of all the cycles in the book. We still have six chapters and 16 sermons to go, as I said. But next week... We begin this final series of grand visions that come at the very end of the book of Revelation. Um, So we're really moving into the the final climactic portion of the book. Thus far, we have seen, as we look forward in history through the lens of the book of Revelation and elsewhere in scripture, we've seen that there are four great stages of history that are presented for us from from where we are from the the era that we're in to the very end. First of all there's this present age between Christ's first coming and his second coming characterized by the spread of the gospel to every people group on earth along with many tribulations. The second period is a short period after this period when Satan is unleashed and will provoke a gathering of the wicked world against the people of God. The third period following this brief period, which is the second period, is the great interruption by the second coming of Christ to to rescue his beloved ones and to bring final judgment upon all that is evil. And then the final period is the longest lasting period of all. It is the great reconstruction of the heavens and the earth and the great wedding day of the Lamb and his beloved bride, the true church, and the glory glory that that ushers in, which lasts forever. Now last week, we talked about the first five bowls of wrath being poured out. 
We talked about how that illustrated the kind of tribulations and hardships God has imposed upon this world during this present age. But bowls 6 and 7 don't just continue this theme of the first five. I think we'll see that just like with the seven seals and the seven trumpets before this, the last couple of bowls talk about what happens at the very end of history. The sixth bowl refers to the second period I just described here, the period, the brief period before the end when Satan is unleashed, and in particular to the great battle of Armageddon when the ungodly wage a final war against God's people. That's the sixth bowl. The seventh bowl refers to the third period, that is the great day when Christ intervenes his second arrival and brings final judgment upon the wicked. So let's read our passage now, which contains the sixth and seventh bowls. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then there's a parenthetical comment in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled then, and they assembled them, that is the kings, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that's the sixth bowl. The seventh bowl begins in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there's never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So that's the seventh bowl. So, first this morning, let's talk through verses 12 to 16 about the sixth bowl of God's wrath and then we'll get to the seventh so verse 12 says 
the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now you know that uh, all through the book of Revelation uh, I've been saying that the that when you see references like this to the great river Euphrates that this isn't designed to tell us where geographically these things are going to happen in the future but these are designed to call to mind stories in the Old Testament or possibly in the New Testament but stories from the past Bible stories that relate to the situation and so it is here um, in the sixth bowl Um, the sixth bowl gets poured out on the Euphrates River and it dries up preparing the way for kings from the east to get through later we find out in verses 14 and 16 that these kings are assembled by satanic powers to fight the battle of Armageddon on the great day of the Lord God Almighty now the Old Testament stories all this is based on are rather rather obscure stories one is about how God brought judgment upon Babylon for what the way that they had treated God's people when they had conquered Israel and taken them into exile and God did so by drying up the Euphrates River and uh, I won't go into detail it's I have a lot more in the notes but uh, of a couple weeks ago apparently I spent too much time going into detail trying to explain and so I'm going to abbreviate today and just let you go to the notes if you'd like to get more information but the second story has to do with the story of the prophet Micaiah and God sending out an evil spirit to provoke King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat to go to battle and uh, because he wanted He wanted to destroy Jehoshaphat. I mean Ahab, sorry. So here in Revelation 16, the drying up of the river depicts the removal of a barrier that holds Satan's powers back from assaulting the church. So it looks like God's working for the enemy by removing this barrier that's holding Satan back. But really... He's got a different agenda. We'll get to that in a minute. The bottom line is to show that God is sovereignly controlling the nations so that, and the kings of the earth so that he can bring about their ultimate destruction and victory for his people. So that gives us a little bit of uh, about the sixth bowl. Uh, the, verse 12 summarizes it but then verse 13 through 16 flesh out the details and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the great day of the Lord God Almighty and they assembled them verse 16, they assembled them on the pla- at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon so here in 
these verses, we're reintroduced to three characters that we saw earlier in chapters 12 and 13. The dragon, the beast, and the second beast, who's here called the false prophet. This is the first time that the phrase false prophet occurs in this book. And uh, he's called the false prophet because his, his job or role is to deceive people into worshipping the first beast. Now we saw how these three formed an unholy, wicked trinity opposed to Christ and his people. Now we know who Satan is. The beast, we said, represents the evil powers of the state that's opposed to Christ and the the false prophet or the second beast represents the world's religious philosophical powers of persuasion and deception. Now, in the pouring out of the sixth bowl, we see these three unclean demonic spirits coming out of the mouths of these three, the Satan, the beast, the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, in order to assemble the kings of the earth for the battle of Armageddon. So let's talk more about this battle of Armageddon. There are a number of places, and all through this, the book of Revelation, this is the time we're going to focus most on the battle of Armageddon. So if you're interested in that, pay attention now. A number of places in the Bible which talk about a great and final battle which will take place at the end of history whereby the forces of evil will surround and attack God's saints. But Jesus will then intervene and deliver his people and destroy his enemies and their enemies. And only in this verse is the place of this battle called Armageddon. And that's why, typically in common parlance, it's called the Battle of Armageddon. We see this in several places that I'd like to read to you. Uh, Just three elsewhere in Scripture. uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Um, One of my favorites. I did a paper on this in seminary, and uh, it had quite an impact on me. Zechariah 14, 1 through 3. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And I abbreviated these a little bit just for the sake of time. Revelation 19, which we're going to come to, you know, we're just about to go into 17, 19. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. Against him who was sitting on his horse. That's the white horse that you'll see the vision of Jesus there. And against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were, th- two were thrown down alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 10, When the thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now there's other places that we could read as well but I didn't want to spend the whole time doing that. But you can see not only the vivid depictions of this battle but how overlapping these three descriptions are of this great day. You see the wick- these wicked nations are deceived into thinking that they are gathering to exterminate the saints. But in fact, they are gathered together by the sovereign God in order to be exterminated by the Lord Jesus as he intervenes on that day. And that's really what we see in the seventh bowl. So let's now move to the seventh bowl where God intervenes and punishes his enemies with final judgment. Beginning in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So first of all, this bowl, you know, these bowls get poured in some pretty strange places. The sixth one got poured in the Euphrates River. This one gets poured in the air. And what is that all about? Well, it seems that this is picking up the concept that we're introduced to in Ephesians 2.2 where Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. It's, uh, It's the realm of Satan. Now, He hears a loud voice, and the loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne. And it says, it is done. Now, you know, when you look at Old Testament prophecies, and you build your expectation of what the coming Messiah is going to be like, and what he's going to do, you don't really know that it's going to take Two comings for him to fulfill what was prophesied about him. But of course, when the New Testament begins, it doesn't take long for us to realize this is a two-part fulfillment. There's his first coming and there's his second coming, right? And um, his first coming, of course, he brings redemption. And then in his second coming, he... consummates that redemption and he brings final judgment. Now when he finished the redemptive portion of his mission, he said, it is finished. And now it seems this voice coming from the temple, coming from the throne, is his statement 
that he has finished the second judgment part of his mission and he says it is done 18 to 21 it elaborates more on this scene of judgment and there are flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth so great was that earthquake the great city and that's referring to Babylon the Babylon the great that, you know, which represents the world's system against God and his, and his Messiah so the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wrath of the fury the cup of the wine of the, wrath, of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe so quite a scene here that begins with the earthquake a great final earthquake and this is spoken of elsewhere, for instance, in Haggai 2.6 and in Hebrews 12.26-27. Um, the great city now that, you know, began with Nebuchadnezzar looking proudly over Babylon saying, this is the great city, the great Babylon that I have built, um, and, and then was humiliated so now the great city that man has built you know is being shattered and uh, and bombed to smithereens by a hundred pound hailstones torn into pieces by a great earthquake everything is destroyed even the islands and the mountains disappear why? Because God made Babylon drink the cup of the wrath of the fury, fury of his wrath. I don't know why I keep getting that wrong. And all this is, by the way, expanded as we move into chapter 17. But you'll notice that in going through the sixth trump, uh, sixth bowl, and then talking about the seventh bowl, and all this that leads up to the end and all this that represents this, the judgment at the end we left out verse 15 right in the middle of all the symbolism of the sixth bowl not the seventh bowl about judgment but the sixth bowl about the day of mounting persecution against God's people Jesus interrupts all the peals of thunder, all the turmoil, all the crashing horrors, and the loud voices. And he whispers a little message to his beloved people. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So it has three parts. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. And keep your clothes on. 
So let's talk about each of those three. I am coming like a thief. The point here is not that Jesus comes to burglarize. Rather, the image of a thief in the night is meant to illustrate the surprise, the surprising nature of his arrival. The fact that he will come at an unexpected moment, which Jesus ex- himself explains in Matthew twenty-four forty-three. You know, it's easy to pay attention to the people around us who are making noise, speaking loud, doing obvious things. You can see them, you can hear them, you can feel them, sometimes you can even smell them. They grab your attention. But it's so easy to disregard the invisible people around us. It's easy not to notice the person who's standing in the shadow or who's peering through the window into the window on a dark night or who's hiding, waiting in the closet. You can't see them or hear them and they certainly don't grab your attention. But the fact is, he is there And when the right moment comes, he's going to come out. And then everyone will notice. Suddenly he will become the one no one can ignore. That's the way it's going to happen. And we need to not forget that. Right now Jesus is laying low. He's being inconspicuous. But don't let anything convince you that he's not really there. Or you'll be ashamed when he does indeed reveal himself. The second part of this little word of Jesus is blessed is the one who stays awake. And obviously this one is related to Jesus coming as a thief in the night. It's important that his people stay awake and watchful. Satan is trying to lure us to sleep every day. This is our battle. And just like, you know, maybe when you're driving and when you're sleepy and you're fighting to stay awake, we need to be shaking ourselves and and fighting to stay awake in a spiritual sense, as Jesus tells us here. It seems to me that there are two different forms of sleepiness that we need to resist. The first is the kind of sleepiness which is similar to Jesus' parable of the the sower, the seed sown among the thorns, the worries and cares of the world, the pleasures and the illusions of the world. We can become so preoccupied with the worldly circumstances around us that we sort of forget about God or fall asleep toward God. But there's another form of sleepiness which I think might even be more in mind here. When the people of God are being surrounded by the world in the day of persecution before the battle of Armageddon, When all the forces of darkness who are intent on their demise surround them, it it will be easy 
And it is, even though, you know, we get closer and closer to that as time wears on, and it is easy now to be so gripped by fear for yourself or your loved ones that it will be easy to fall asleep toward God and forget that He is waiting in the wings and about to burst on the scene just at the right moment. If we are not alert to His imminent arrival, if we forget that He sits upon the throne, if we get caught up in the turmoil of earthly life, if we are overwhelmed by the scary threats around us, if we give in to that fear and panic instead of persevering in trust, instead of remembering that Jesus is there, instead of remaining certain of His imminent intervention, then we have fallen asleep. It's hard to think, it's hard to read this and not think of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, when Jesus says, blessed is the one who stays awake. You remember that crucial, pivotal hour. It was time to pray, time to be alert to the earth-shaking, history-transforming things which were taking place. It was also the eve of the disciples' temptation. But the disciples were oblivious and very sleepy. Over and over again, they just couldn't stay awake. And so when that day came, they weren't ready. And they failed miserably. Let it not be so for us. The third thing that Jesus says is, Blessed is the one who keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now I think a good biblical case could probably be made from Scripture for not joining a nudist society. And this verse might seem like an obvious one to use. But this verse isn't talking about that kind of nudity. When Jesus tells his people here to keep their garments on, he's not talking about the kind of clothes you take off when you get in the shower. Now some people, some of us, and I will include myself, occasionally have dreams of being in situations with less than adequate clothing on. Obviously, down deep, there's a, a fear of being in that kind of situation. But Jesus says here that there's a form of nakedness, a form of keeping one's garments on, a form of being seen exposed, which is much more important and much more costly than that. It's spiritual nakedness, spiritual exposure. It's being unclothed spiritually. You remember in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation that Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You see, garments here symbolize being clothed with Christ, having your sins covered. It involves refusing to compromise with the world. It refers to garments necessary for admission to the wedding banquet. In as it's Jesus' parable tells us in Matthew twenty-two, eleven to thirteen. You see, we must not go out into the world without being clothed with Christ. We mustn't go out into our day without being clothed with Christ. Put on the put off the old self and put on the new self as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And above all these, put on love, Paul tells us in Colossians 3. There is a great battle being waged in the world, and it is not come as you are. We must not fall into temptations to think that we are enough on our own. That we have what we need in ourselves. That we don't need to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. We must put on the new self. We must be clothe ourselves with Christ. You know, in this little word from Jesus, we see how good he is to his precious sheep. One of the great fears of people who get kidnapped or who are taken hostage or taken as prisoners of war is the fear of whether anyone out there even knows that they're there. Whether anyone out there is working to try to deliver them. And when the nurse comes in and to check your vital signs and whispers in your ear, be ready, your rescue is will be soon. That changes everything. It means they haven't forgotten you. It means that your rescue is being planned. And it means that you need to be alert and ready. And that's exactly what's going on with this little statement that Jesus makes to us in the midst of all this. I'm coming. Stay awake. Be ready. You know, in the book of Revelation... Jesus tells us the kind of things we're going to have to face. And he tells us how we're going to be able to face them. And he tells us that it won't last long before he comes and takes all the hardship away and gives us reward far beyond all comparison to the suffering we've experienced. The American dream of a safe, happy, healthy, prosperous life even if you were to obtain it, would last only a little while.
But the life that Jesus is calling us to pursue is a life of following him. And so it will reflect his life. It will involve service and sacrifice, rejection and even crucifixion. But it will lead to resurrection and abundant life forever. Forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our hearts are lifted up by the reminder of your promises. The reminder of the situation that we find ourselves in. That there's an end to our distresses. That there's a day coming when the sufferings that we experience here in this world, when we look back at them, will seem minuscule compared to the reward that we will be enjoying. Oh Lord, help us to keep these things in mind. Help us to stay alert and be ready. Help us to live today with tomorrow in mind. Now thank you, dear Lord, for the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper. And we pray that as we come and partake, that you would meet us here, O Lord, in this little taste of the great wedding banquet of the Lamb that one day we will feast at. And dear Lord, strengthen us according to your word and according to your promises as we partake. We pray in Jesus' name.